Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it complicated and then try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. Now, the baseball season is, of course, finished, so I won't be on it as much looking for tickets for baseball, or at all, really. I mean, what games are there? But uh, comedy is is a big thing I like to enjoy during the winter. And so you can st- you can use SeatGeek for everything else. Concerts, that's kind of all-encompassing when it comes to comedy shows, um, you know, theater shows, actual, con- you know, music concerts, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, they got Broadway, music festivals, they got everything on there. So you can still use it to find that. In fact, I was just looking the other day uh, to find some some Seinfeld tickets. So I'm kind of interested to see what I'm going to be able to find there. He's coming uh, in January. So Now, SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. SeatGeek pulls the tickets available on other sites all into one place so you save time and you never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming games, and SeatGeek will let you know if prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. In fact, I can get you 20 bucks just for listening to the show. All you have to do is uh, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo. Enter the promo code SLEEPER. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase with them. So again, just download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code SLEEPER today. Six of the sleeper in the bust. It is Tuesday, November twenty second. I'm your host, Paul Spore, joined by Eno Saris. Eno, please don't lock me out, bud. No, I don't want to get locked out. I can't get locked out. I have nothing else going for me other than bit. No, it's not. I have a couple beautiful kids. I have nothing else. I have a dog. <laughs> my life is baseball. <laughs> don't well, do this I, to you me. You have my love, Paul. <laughs> Ken Rosenthal. Reporting, you know, by the time this comes out in about an hour, so you you might already know, but in case you don't, article from Ken Rosenthal floating around talking about baseball's streak of 21 consecutive years of labor peace possibly in jeopardy as the owners, owners will consider voting to lock the players out if they cannot reach a new CBA collective bargaining agreement by December 1st. The clock is ticking, you know, we're talking just over a week here. Now, the one little uh, or, or major, I think, aspect of this that kind of tamps down our major concern is that once we dug in and started to see some of the issues that they were having, they certainly don't look like issues that should cause a lockout. We're talking about an international draft being a major one, the uh, the competitive balance tax, which is is essentially the luxury tax. As another point of contention, the joint drug agreement, which continues to kind of circle around. We're still talking steroids, folks. I mean, guys are still getting popped for it, so I guess it is still something that's on the table. But these don't seem like lockout-worthy um, issues, right? They, they, they seem more like things that can be worked out even if they needed an extension of time. I don't know how that would work, if they could extend it into the winter meetings or what, but uh, you talk. You look back at '94. You'd mentioned this uh, when we were talking earlier. 
when it was nine when it was nineteen ninety four, it was how big a piece of pie is each side getting, and that's we've seen it in other sports too. That's when you start getting your lockouts and your strikes. When we're not getting enough on our side, or the owners don't want to give that extra percentage on their side, that's lockout talk. I I don't know that this will come to pass, but I am still a little bit worried when it's I just, see Ken Rosenthal write about it. Yeah, it's, it's it's not good to see that. And I think you know the one thing about journalism in sports is that you're being manipulated by your sources. And so, you know, mm-hmm. the best you can do is try to write fairly. And, and, um, when you, when you are source late and like, uh, Ken Rosenthal, you try to write fairly, try to manage between your sources, try to, um, you know, not, uh, upset sources, but also write the truth. So, uh, you know, he could be being manipulated. I mean, the, the way easiest way to see this manipulation is say, you know, Chris Cotillo, um, you know, if you look at the the stuff that he says, it's always straight from the agent's mouth. I mean, it's always like this terrible player is getting interest from six teams. And you're just like, uh, no, no. I mean, maybe, maybe they said, yeah, that guy's interesting. Like, um, what's his name? What's his name all about? Like, what's that from? Tw- uh, 28 teams begging Nick Punto to come out of retirement. Exactly. <laughs> Says Nick Punto's agent. Um, Says Nick so, Punto's agent, um, a.k.a. actually his wife. So, his wife runs his own. So in this case, it might just be somebody on one side or the other trying to, like probably somebody on the player's side trying to say to the owners, come on, you know, we're not afraid of a lockout. We'll do this in whatever little thing we're arguing about now. Let's get it over with. Because, like you said, it doesn't seem like the biggest deals. It's not the pie. The pie is a big deal. That's 48, 49, 50%. That's a real number that gets really ugly when it's real low. And then the players say, what are you, what are you talking about? We should be getting 50%. We, we, we play, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> we're, we're the reason that people come to the park. Um, no one's coming to the park for Lou Wolf. But uh, the, the thing that, um, that's disingenuous about that is that the owners have pulled MLBAM out of the pie. And they own MLBAM, the stats wing, the stat cast wing. The advanced media, yeah, which is a massive entity. It's the, and that's how you, you watch MLB TV. They pulled MLB TV out of the pie somehow. And didn't you mention that, so we were talking, like I said, we were talking about this off air. Uh, part of the trick that they did was to expand the organization beyond MLB because they, folks, if you watch NHL.TV, that's them. Um, if you watch HBO Go now, that is that is the the advanced media wing of MLB. Uh, I want to say they do some wrestling stuff. I don't know if Wrestling Network has an on-demand or something, but I know they're involved with them. I think that they were trying to get MBA's online uh, presence as well. I don't know if they did or not, but by expanding and becoming more of a, a, a sports media entity and even beyond sports with HBO Go, I think that's how they try to uh, finagle it and say, well, see, we can't include this because you guys can't get revenues from that. But that seems sketchy that for that the players to get nothing yeah. out of the MLB uh the MLB stuff of MLB. Yeah, I mean, he talks AM. about uh, that. You can talk about it being a content platform or uh, a stats company, a digital media stats company, you know, data company. These things, you can say those those things and, and make it sound like, yeah, it's not about baseball. But the thing that launched it was MLB TV, and that's MLB. Absolutely. So it's a little bit weird that's out of the pie. But once that's out of the pie and we're not hearing anything in the Rosenthal article or never hearing anything in sort of labor tweets or stuff about it. We're not hearing anything about them going after MLB. I think that one, they lost that battle. It's already, it's out, you know, it's not, 
it's not a part of the the, the uh, discussion anymore. So now we're talking about, like you said, international draft. And international draft is something that affects. It doesn't affect a hundred percent of the players. So it's going to be really hard to get like a seventy-five percent player vote uh, for a lockout based on something that only affects twenty-five percent of them. Um, for, and we, we've seen this before. Like they just don't usually go to bat for minor league and and not even in the group yet. And, and and we see it repeatedly just with the way that minor leaguers are treated and they're in the pool. Like they're at least in, they're affiliated with, with baseball and they still don't even get treated well. So for the folks that are coming internationally that aren't even here yet, that just might be a part of the group, their best interests are not going to be looked after. And so maybe they will budge on something like an international draft to get something that they want on the other end, whether it's in the joint drug agreement or to, you know, with the luxury tax, uh, competitive balance tax situation. So, again, these don't look like total game changers that are going to keep them in a lock or push them to a lockout. But, again, just hearing that it's even considered is a little bit alarming. All right, you know, let's go ahead and talk uh, actual baseball, though. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about potential lockouts. I'll lead off with a question of the day for you. We've talked about this uh, AFL draft. It was, you know, we f- focused our, our live podcast around it. I talked with Sammy uh, Reed and Doug Thorburn about it. I'll post the pictures again so people can know what, what how it went down in these late rounds. But my question to you, because we're going to focus on starting pitchers, there have been absolutely no transactions since uh, Jason and I recorded. So you and I are just talking pitchers today. Who was your favorite late round pick from that draft and by late round i'm talking 19 through 23 so the last five rounds there were tons of pitchers drafted that's often where a lot of gambles are taken on pitchers who was your favorite of of the bunch there i i circled some guys and i and it looks like we're going to talk about a lot of them we're going to probably dive in on a couple of them so uh you feel free to mention them because we can kind of preview that they're going to be coming up and then you can highlight the one who isn't on either of those lists well, that you uh, that you still I liked. mean my chubby for Drell Cotton is is well known so uh, yeah I figured that you would pick him but since we are going to get to him we'll later leave him off we, the list. we don't we don't um, have to dive you in You know Marcus Estrada yeah. is really interesting because he just seems to keep putting up numbers and you know we've talked about why that might be in terms of you know his 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 changeup spin and his fastball spin and all that I still, whenever you're humping it up there at 87, I just, uh, 87, 88, I just, it just makes me nervous. I, I, the market agrees. I couldn't believe I got him in the 20th round. I didn't even, like, I didn't really want him. I would, yeah, strong, I would like, never, I would never hate on the pick, but it, it just doesn't rise to, like, the, that's the pick I need to have. It's kind of like Stephen Wright. If Stephen Wright remind, remains, uh, you know, young knuckleballer, you know, young in quotation marks because he's already old but for a knuckleballer young if he if he can still throw the 78 79 mile an hour knuckler and he's good next year you know a lot of those things will work out but you know it's kind of like relying on an 87 mile an hour fastball guy so i mean both those guys i like that late um and uh, let's talk about michael pineda later because uh he's pretty interesting too but the guy i really wanted to just highlight uh was uh junior guerra and um there's a lot of uh, discussion kind of here and there. Um, you know, people, some people have different uh, feelings about him. Um, some feel that uh, I've actually been told, you know, like that, that he's going to be a big bust next year and that, that um, he was overvalued. But, and he did come up 
in my spin thing at first pitch Arizona as um, being a low spin curveball guy. However, and since I've had the the chance to kind of look at this, I think it's not a it's not a, a curve; it's a slider. And okay. <clears throat> the more that you your pitch is a, is a, like a slider, the more um, the spin drops out. Uh, Statcast is not very good at sliders. It loses more sliders. It puts zeros in. Um, you know, all sorts of just there are more errors in sliders, and we know less about what spin means for sliders. So, I uh, if you're gonna call him a uh, if you're gonna call that pitch a, a curve, there are some negative things you could say about it: low spin, blah blah blah. I'm gonna call it a slider. I'm gonna focus on the fact that it was firming up um, as the season went on, and because it's an 84 mile an hour slider with a lot of drop and drop and, and velocity are the best things for your slider. So, you know, you, it was a, it was kind of like 81 at times and, um, that's really slow for, for a slider. So, um, especially today with what we're seeing with like the Warthen slider and, and even other guys who aren't under, uh, the tutelage of Dan Warthen with the Mets throwing mid eighties, high eighties, low nineties yeah. sliders. So to see an 81, that really stands out as, whoa, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to have that low of a slider, you think, okay, well, he's got a slurve and it's not, it looks like it might be bad. However, it gets a decent amount of drop and I just I just wanted to look at this if he gets it above 83 miles an hour and um for the season he averaged 82 but there were times when he was up to 84 uh so if he yeah, averages, you're averaging 82 you're, you're getting some 83s 84s 85s right yeah so if he can average 83 if he can just push a little bit and it was firming up as the season went on um then I did I just did a little quick query it would have uh, more drop than all but uh, seven sliders that average more than 83 miles an hour. So it would be a very droppy regular slider. And droppy. of those pitchers, only Marcus Stroman is a starter. So it would suddenly be like this unique pitch in the game. And, Oh, by the way, we're talking about his third best pitch. I mean, this is very definitely his third best pitch. He's a oh, exactly like yeah. You know, Garrett has a solid fastball, um, ninety three, ninety four that can reach mid nineties, and the split finger is really where Junior Garrett wins. That is his best pitch. So the the slider slurve doesn't even need to be that great. But if he if it's if it's above average or at least a, a firm average pitch, that's really going to work. I mean, he's a thirty one year old having a you know breakout out of nowhere really he threw four innings in 2015 and then 122 this year before they limited him he was really good though i don't think he's a 281 era guy but i think it can be a 350 era guy with a good whip and a passable strikeout rate in the uh, seven and a half to eight range based yeah, I on think, the swinging strikes that he can get i think the strikeout yeah i think the strikeout rate is low i mean a 10.9 percent swing strike rate is pretty good and the, mm-hmm. the stuff he's got is pretty good so i think Sometimes with the splitter, maybe he just, or maybe they made contact, um, you know, with the fastball, but just didn't do much with it. Uh, that's a possibility up at 93 and 94 for a starter. Um, the exit velocity page for him looks good most weeks. I mean, there's uh, uh, only about one week where it was bad, and then there was, you know, seven or eight weeks where it was really good, and then there's like three or four weeks where it was average. So, uh, and that's all we have for him, you know. I mean, because because like you said, he was a catcher that wasn't really throwing a lot. 
But if you look at those minor league strikeout rates, you know, 11 per nine um, in AAA, and even this year in AAA, 8.5 per nine, that's what I see coming from him. Uh, and given his stuff, I, I think that's that's even the projections push that. Now the projections uh, want to give him, you know, bat, you know, regular batting average on balls in play or worse, and they want to give him, you know, a lot of home runs per nine. Uh, but we've talked about in the past how at 94 miles an hour you start giving up fewer home runs on your fastball. So if he can stay healthy and he can do a full season, I, I agree with you. I think that's I think we're looking at you know eight eight plus strikeouts per nine and uh, you know like a three five ERA. And here's the thing: Junior Guerra went 19th round in that draft. That's where he's that's like the highest I think he's really going to go in a 15 team draft. He's going to go in the late teens, early 20s. This is not going to be a guy who's on everybody's radar. I harp constantly on the ageism of fantasy baseball. They don't, you know, I shouldn't even say they. I play into it sometimes, too. I look at two players. I'm like, okay, this guy's 33. This guy's 28. 33-year-old is a better player. 28-year-old, hey, he's not not 33. And sometimes I just take the younger guy. And I'm trying to get away from that more and just seeing players for their skills. 32-year-old. Obviously, doesn't have a lot of mileage on his arm, so I don't know that he can right. necessarily be treated like normal. There is a reason sometimes to avoid age because of uh, the incre- the increase of injury goes up, velocity, the mileage, yeah, velocity uh, drops go. You know, they drop more velocity in, in a year to year. But like you said, this is not a, your typical thirty uh, year old. And yeah, I think sometimes we push like you know we could uh, Gerald Cotton like he's going to go ahead of Javier or Junior Guerra in nine times nine leagues out of ten. I think. By the way, I constantly call him Javi Guerra, yeah, right. f- former former reliever uh, who closed for a brief moment. So I'm totally with you on that. But uh, yeah, don't don't sleep on Junior Guerra from Minnesota, uh, Milwaukee. Excuse me. I also think that uh, Milwaukee's not going to be a total bottom feeder. So you know he he actually ended up going nine and three in his 20 starts. So you didn't even have to necessarily worry about uh, him not pulling W's. But I, I could actually see him getting you double digit wins over a full season. Uh, because I think they have some offense that can support him. Now it'll be dependent upon, you know, if he's leaving leaving scant leads for a bullpen to protect. I don't know how good their bullpen's going to be. That's usually the mark of a bad team is bullpen. But I like Junior Gare. That's a good name. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about a heck of a lot more pitchers here. we got two different uh, sections to talk about. First off, strong strong finishes from from starters. Uh, some of these guys had awful starts. Some of these guys uh, came up in the second half, Cotton being one of them. And so we're going to dive in on a bunch of those. And then we're going to talk some FIP superstars. And really what we're looking at isn't so much guys with the lowest FIP, but the biggest ERA to FIP differential. And I didn't just go down the list of them because some of them, okay, he had a 587 ERA and a 5 ERA. Okay, so that's 8.87 difference, but I still don't really care about him. We're looking at the guys who, when you look at ERA versus FIP, their FIP tells a much better story, and then they have some skills to support it, and I want to get your thoughts on that. But let's start with the strong uh, finishes in the second half here, and I'll start with Eduardo Rodriguez. I'm going to tease you a little bit longer before you can talk about Jarrell Cotton. Um, <laughs> and and let, let's talk Eduardo because you know he came in with a lot of buzz this year. I was certainly somebody that was banging the drum for Eduardo Rodriguez based on what we'd seen from him in 2015 he had some pitch tipping issues but it seemed like okay you're getting that under track you stop flaring the glove when you're throwing the breaking ball and even in the midst of those issues that caused him to get beat around a couple different times uh eduardo rodriguez still put up a 385 era and a 129 whip in 122 innings 
then this year, injuries really derailed his season. Um, I think he started the season on the DL. I think it was a knee that, that, really got, uh, that really got Rodriguez this year. And so he didn't even really get into a groove until the summer. He made one start, uh, no, no starts in April, one start in May. And then finally, you know, his season really started in June. He was bad in June, but then really picked it up in the second half. Ended up with a 324 ERA in 77 and two-thirds innings with 9.2 strikeouts and a 113 whip in the second half. So Eduardo Rodriguez started to show some of the upside that, uh, you know, those of his, his proponents thought he had, but it was a little bit too little too late. And I, I believe that because of the bottom line being a 471 ERA in 107 innings, he'll be overlooked. What do you think of a 24-year-old lefty Eduardo Rodriguez going into 2017? It's funny. I just wanted to look at the swing percentage because um, you were talking about tipping pitches. And there was a one game where uh, they swung at 100% of his change-ups. <laughs> it's only eight, but... That's, that's still, still kind of crazy. Yeah, though. it's just like this one big thing. I mean, it's like... And it was against the Yankees. I wonder... I wonder if that was around the time. Um, any case, uh, the I think the thing that's really interesting for him is a little bit about velocity and health. Uh, I did talk to him late in the season, and one of the things that uh, he talked about was I asked him, you know, where did that velocity come from? And he said, well, you know, I was like 91, 92. Then it turned out I had a hurt knee. I had the surgery for the knee, and... Uh, when I came back, all of a sudden I was 94, 95, and uh, I don't know really where to go with that except, um, you know, for the most part in the major leagues he's been 94. So mm-hmm. that's from the left side. That's too. plus plus velocity from the left side. That's yeah. so good. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, and then uh, you know I think part of his journey to the major leagues has been sort of firming up his slider. When he first came up, or in the minor leagues, he was kind of um, 82, 83 with the slider. And since he's gotten to the major leagues, um, he's been uh, 86, uh, 85, 86 with it. So I think that firming up the slider has been good for him. Um, he can he can back foot that thing now. And um, he's still got um, a decent gap on his changeup. Although that changeup has gotten firmer uh, and the gap is lower, so uh, on paper it doesn't look um, the changeup doesn't look amazing, but he's managed to keep good results on it. And even as the changeup got firmer, it got movier. Um, and if you just look at his outcomes on it, he's um, he pretty much gets like 20% whiffs on it all the time. So I, I think he's found something with that that is good enough. Um, and I don't think that uh, I have to question it so much. It's more consistency. You know, he's just, it's a weird sort of old school thing to fall back on, but he, he seems to have all the tools, but he just hasn't been able to, to achieve in a consistency. And you see it mostly in the home runs, but I think, you know, that's just looking at the overall line. If you kind of look at his game log, you're like, uh, holy hell, like, you know, there's all these like one run games that he had a against Tampa the second to last start 13 strikeouts and two walks and 5.1 innings with one earned run uh, then he had a nine run uh, he had against the Rays a nine run two inning uh, affair and uh, and then against the Royals five runs and five innings but generally as the season went on he got better 
and um, that's the thing too. Uh, again, back in in fifteen, Eduardo Rodriguez, it, it it's always these blowups, right? It's these isolated, awful starts that that really inflate his bottom line. And for me, I kind of uh, I, I like that better than someone who goes out every time and goes five innings, four runs. Um, you know, I, I want to see somebody have a lot of success. Okay, maybe they run into that hurdle, but fix those problems that cause a nine inning, two and two thirds. Uh, affair or four runs on eight hits and two and a third innings against the Yankees. I feel like fixing those isolated issues uh, is a lot easier than somebody who's just kind of mediocre every single start. So I, I, I like this, the the profile that we're seeing develop here from Eduardo, Eduardo Rodriguez. And one of the things, you know, he's a good example of how growth isn't linear, right? You feel like, okay, he can build on his 2015 and he's going to be better in 2016 doesn't always happen that way there's extenuating circumstances this happened to be injury that was a big part of it but we did actually end up seeing a little bit of growth with the strikeout rate and even with the walk rate in the second half once he got going so i think there's there's still upside to yeah i i uh i know that the selective endpoint game is is um makes some people roll their eyes but in his case uh he had the very public thing about tipping his pitches and uh and i'm not just you know, sort of cutting all of his bad games out. There's still some bad games in here. But I did uh, look for the game after the game in which they swung at 100% of his change-ups, which is right around the time uh, that you can see in the news them talking about his tipping his pitches. So uh, basically from his last game in August against Detroit um, all the way to the end of the season, he had uh, 9.6 strikeouts per nine, 3.4 walks per nine, 0.7 homers per nine, and a 3.44 ERA. So, I think that represents his upside. I mean, at some point, maybe he could he can improve the command beyond and, that. But and that might be um, you know so, two years down the road, right? You know, it, yeah. I think I think in terms of next year, I would be you know I'd probably project him for like 3.75 just to be mm-hmm. be careful. But you know, in my head, be saying this is a guy who could be like a two three okay. for me. You know, three four these days is is a two three. The league, the league's nice. Race. Um, so yeah, I'm in, I'm in on Eduardo Rodriguez again. I, I think when you... just for the auto new heads, I've got him for uh, I think nine dollars in auto new five by five. How many teams? And it's very borderline. I talk to people in in trade and trade things where they say, you know, that's too much. You're cutting him, and I'm not gonna cut him. I'm not gonna cut him. It's one of those things where I know your surplus calculator says it's not he's not a nine dollar pitcher, but I also know that if he goes back onto the market and we're all you know and we've all got you know we want to get some some pitching and we want to get some young pitching, especially among the teams that are rebuilding, there's no way that it goes he goes for much more much more, much less than ten. You know, I just feel like that's the kind of pitcher that everybody will want to get on their team. Absolutely, you know. And if I if I cut him and he only goes for five or six, then you know, whoa, I save three dollars. But if I save, if I put him on my team, and I'm kind of one of those rebuilding teams myself, although I finished, I think fifth. Is that the team I drafted? I need that. Yeah, I think you helped me draft that. So you one. lost I need four spots from the team I drafted because I drafted a first place team, and so you fell down to fifth, fifth from that. Oh yeah, that's all my fault. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I honestly. <laughs> I could see nine uh, being doable. Have you have you talked to? It's out of four hundred exactly. too, so it's not. It's not that same it's, scale. It's more like uh, 
like four or five dollars for for you know have you ran it by the out new crew to see what they say I have not. I know they would give me an opinion, but I don't want them Overly to influenced. tell yeah. me to cut them. Because <laughs> yeah. I want to keep them. So I'm going to make this mistake I, on I'm my doing own. It. I'm not listening to you, Dad. <laughs> Shut up. All right, you know, I'm going to lay out here. It's Drell Cotton time. Um, the, okay, a little background first, then I'll lay out. Right-hander came over in the Rich Hill, Josh Reddick deal. Um Always has been like a prospect, but more of like a back end of the top 10 sort of guy. Doesn't doesn't usually get like top 100 accolades. He might have been top 100 at some point this year after graduations because I know MLB Network was consistently updating their list um, as as guys moved up. So you, you might have seen a point in time where Drill Cotton was a top 100 guy. But, you know, he's always been one of these live arm guys. Looks like a major leaguer. Worst case was always going to be a, a reliever. Came up for Oakland, only threw 29 in the third innings, but it was five starts, and they were really good. And obviously, we have to talk about more of what we can expect over a full season, but I know he was instrumental in some in some title runs for some folks, even in just five starts, because he put up a 215 ERA, .82 whip, uh, only 7.1 strikeouts, but 1.2 walks, 6.1 hits. Like He was, he was really limiting damage, uh, even with four homers. They were solos, I think. I think maybe there was one that wasn't. And, you know, he, he was good with Nashville with them, which was interesting, too, because he was in Oklahoma City with the Dodgers in the PCL and got knocked around there. He was still in the PCL with Nashville, uh, but pitched much better with Oakland. So I don't know if they changed anything or not. Maybe you'll address that. Don't recall seeing him in Arizona two years ago. I've always known the name, but nothing stands out about if I saw any of his 14 and a third innings. But uh, this is an interesting name. I think he's somebody that will get some off-season buzz, if only because uh, we'll be propping him up. But tell us a little bit about 25-year-old Jarrell Cotton. One little fun aside uh, is that um, he is from the Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. and uh, so is this other guy, Akil Morris. Uh, both these guys have basically the same changeup. And... Um, I just think that's a fun little thing. They must have. There's some mechanics there, either grip or something that they learned from that they learned from each other, and uh, it's actually kind of similar uh, to the Marco Estrada changeup, in that it's relatively high spin. Um, You know, Cotton would have uh, the 30th highest spin, but that's that's with no. That's like with anybody who threw one changeup. If you if you limit it to somebody who threw 100 changeups, Cotton has the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth highest spin in baseball, and Estrada um, would be like uh, 12th. So, um, oh, wow. you know, straight change that has a huge gap um, in terms of velocity. He, uh, the Cotton's fastball goes like 92. An obscene gap. Yeah, and his changeup goes 76. So, <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. So, you know, if you look at his and he leans on it too. This is not like a show me change. No. This is this is his best prime uh, his secondary pitch uh, outside of the fastball. That twenty eight percent usage. Like he is using this sucker and it's working. What an insane change. Yeah, and uh, if you look at movement on it, you might say, well, it doesn't have much horizontal movement. He doesn't have much horizontal movement in general, so he's not going to be good for ground balls. Uh, horizontal movement is the way you get off the barrel. You try to go for contact, and um, 
you, you know, you miss the sweet spot by a couple inches and you get a ground ball. He does not really have that. Even a sinker has less than average horizontal movement. Um, well, he's a pop-up master yes, then. He should um, be a pop-up fly, fly ball guy. strikeout guy. That's the, that's the right I, park, right? O- Oakland knew what they were doing. So. They probably assessed this and said, okay, not going to be a ground ball guy. We don't care. We have the park to kind of hide it. And and the, and you you've invoked the name of Strada. That's kind of what how Estrada succeeds too, right? He gets a lot of pop ups and fly balls too. Um, not much of a ground ball guy himself. Yeah, the spin rate on uh, Cotton's change is almost exactly uh, the same as the spin rate on his four seam. Um, and his four seam gets an extra inch of ride um, above normal uh, things, and then his changeup drops seven inches beyond that. So, you know, you you're seeing something that has similar spin. Uh, it's a straight change, so it doesn't have that sideways spin. So you can be like, oh, I see the sideways spin. It's a sinker or a change, you know? Um, instead, you get similar spin to your to the four seam, and the four seam is up here, and then the changeup is 16 miles an hour slower and down here. So <laughs> six inches lower. So I think, I think that changeup is – it's almost like Rich Hill where it's like he's got that – that one, two punch that is so is going to be so good that I think his floor is, is really high. Um, I mean, we're talking about like a 9% whiff four seam and a, like a 20% whiff change up so that he's going to be like a 12% whiff guy, Jeez. you know, that's really, On that's those really two good. And he, then there was a 13% swinging strike rate for cotton last year. So the, I mentioned the 7.1 K nine, that was that was under like over a full season. You keep getting a thirteen percent swinging strike rate. You're gonna have way more than seven point one. You're gonna have closer to, to nine nine and a half. Yeah, honestly, and his minor league projections, they're not even as spotty as you know. With Garrow, we're like, well, you know, a couple stints in AAA with nice strikeouts. Uh, with Cotton, everywhere, you have to go back to A ball to get a bad strikeout rate, and that was in one game, two games. So. <laughs> Doesn't Basically, his strikeout per nine or his strikeout his strikeout percentage in the minor leagues was like thirty percent. His strikeout per nine was like eleven or twelve. So, you know, this guy struck everybody out. A little bit of a command problem, but it it kind of I think resolved itself probably when he saw how nobody can hit his changeup. So he's just like, I'm gonna get ahead and then I'll win this thing. Um, I you know you can call him a performance prospect because. He only averages 92, and scouts didn't like him as much. But I think a straight change probably uh, doesn't look as sexy as a as a big time side to side, you know, change up with good fade. Yeah, with a kill, yeah, killer fade, and a little bit, um, not never young in yeah. for his level, right? He was a college guy, so he was always right around the age that that you should be. Uh, or maybe bumping up against uh, against it as he was moving up to the minors until he finally got to AAA as a 24-year-old, which is perfectly fine. So we're still talking about a 25-year-old who has logged 447 minor league innings. I mean, he's certainly not old, but he was never some 20-year-old in AA right. dominating. Which It got everybody's attention, got him drooling over 17-year-olds. It should be illegal. Um, and then uh, we, we, we got... Uh, <laughs> We got the. That's part of the lockout. There'll be no more drooling <laughs> over sixteen and seventeen year olds. They must be eighteen year old prospects. And then I don't know exactly when he added the cutter. So that's the that's the third piece. Like we talked about with Garrett with the curve. Um, you know how much do we believe in this third piece? As hard it is as it is for me to study 
um, sliders, and I, I only know that harder is better and more drop is better. And then as hard as it is to study change-ups with respect to spin, and I've, I've been staring at these, these documents that I've got and I, these Tableau write-ups I've got, I can't figure it out. I think spin is like one of those things where you either want your fastball and change-up spin to be very similar and very high, kind of the Marco Estrada way, or you want them to be very different and you want your change-up spin to be very low, which is... Uh, I don't have a great example off the top of my... Well, I have to actually have this sorted for spin, I think. I do. Uh, here are some low-spin, uh, popular, uh, good change-ups. Uh, Jeremy Hellickson. Hey, we've been talking a lot yeah. about his change-up lately. Uh, even lower. Let's go, let's go real low. Um, How real low, low can you go? and good. Jose Quintana. Jose Quintana's changeup is not that good. He's good. Ben but the changeup isn't that good. I thought you were gonna say Danny Salazar. In Danny my Salazar. head, in my head, I thought of somebody named Ben. <laughs> I'm so dumb. No, Ben Ben balls. and then uh, Danny Salazar and Dan Straley. So like uh, changeups that drop a lot, and. Um, Dan Straley's interesting because he has a rising fastball and he has a really low uh, spin uh, dropping changeup. And he has actually like maybe the second biggest differential between uh, his fastball and his changeup in terms of vertical drop. So that's, I think, you could almost call it the Dan Straley. I'll call it the Danny Salazar because more people think Danny Salazar is good. But um, you either got the sort of Danny Salazar approach with the low spin, big drop, big move, or you have the, uh, the kind of Estrada... Uh, straight change approach. So I think that'll work for cotton. As much as that stuff is all very hard to do, cutters are impossible. Cutters are not sliders. They're not fastballs. They're uh, nobody knows what they are. Nobody knows how to classify them. Nobody knows what's good. I have no idea what's good. Cut. I like that. You just off the top of my head, I like the fact that cotton's cutter goes 88, which is right sort of in between everything, and that um, it's the only. It's like his regular pitch that uh, goes in the opposite direction. That it it has the drop between his four seam and his change, so it's like kind of settles in the middle there. So I feel like that gives him kind of three movement bands, if not horizontally, at least vertically, gives him three velocity bands. And uh, as far as outcomes, he's only thrown seventy four of them, but he got twenty two percent whiffs. So that's really good. That, that, that's you really, probably are so, waiting for that rise ball. You're either you're stuck either stuck in between on the rise ball and the change, or you think you can spot the change. So you're sitting on the four seam, and instead of the four seam, you get the cutter. Right, get a cutter. So yeah. I think I think the, that's enough. I think he's got enough. I'm really really like it. There's a lot to like with Cotton here. Obviously, I, I don't think we're done talking him up, and so that's obviously going to inflate his price at least in our drafts. Um, he was taken in the 21st round of this draft. How early are you looking to take him to ensure that you get him so that you don't get trumped by somebody who takes him not just to spite you, but partly to say, well, Eno can't have him. I'm oh, going to jump him here do, in, in this that, round. Man, it sucks. It's the worst part of having to podcast and read and write and stuff. It's like everyone knows who I like. Yeah, if you're on if you're on a, a online draft, they'll put in the chat, you know, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if you're live draft, no, they'll you look wanted. over at you and be like, "Wasn't gonna let you get him." So you're 
he's not going to continue to go in the 21st round. First off, I think the part of it was just being the super early draft. We haven't had a chance to kind of digest the season. Cotton's going to move up from this 21st round spot. How high would you consider him? Are you thinking 15, well, 16? I see uh, in this draft, I see in the 17th, Dylan Bundy and Garrett Richards. Those two? I think so. Dylan Bundy's arm is held it on is. with and dental Richards floss. Richards is just scary. And, uh, like, like, I love Richards when he's on. There is no dental floss. But we floss. just don't know what's going on. <laughs> like he, he bypassed Tommy John. He went for the rehab, and so that's that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Um, Musgrove in that same round. Conley in the next round. I have to switch over to the left view now. Uh, Robbie Ray, Iwakuma, Eikhoff in the 15th. Uh, I don't think – I think Eikhoff has shown a little bit more and is in Nationally, the uh, National with, League. Uh, and, with, with some good parks and teams. To, well, Atlanta actually hit a lot in the second half. If they carry that over, they're not – they're not the bottom feeder. I think 16th, 17th. I mean, Michael Walker in the 17th. Blake Snell in the 17th. I love yeah, those guys. Michael Walker was my um, pick. No big deal. And so I, I, I think that's a like Cotton and Snell. That's that's kind of that feels right for me. Next up, Jeff Samarja. We're going completely on the other end of the spectrum here. We're going with an old guy. Uh, there were heavy expectations. Just getting out oh, of really? Chicago was was enough uh, to to drive some interest in in Samarja. He was disastrous with the White Sox. There's really no two ways around it. Not to mention the fact that he was going to go to the NL. He was going to go to a great park in the NL. He was going to go to a great pitching team in the NL. They, Dave Rigetti, uh, Dick Tidrow, Buster Posey, like they really work well with pitchers out there. So there were some heavy expectations. And frankly, you know, he cut more than a runoff, uh, 1.5, or excuse me, 1.15 runs off of his ERA. So it's not like it wasn't successful. But I think there were expectations for even more after a 314 ERA and 283 ERA the two years before. Well, excuse me, that was the same year. That was with Chicago and Oakland, respectively. So it was a 299 all told in 2014. I think that the expectations were for even more from Samarja, but home runs were an issue. He really, he really took it on the chin with the, uh, with the home run league-wide surge. But finally started to kind of put it together in the second half. Ended up with a 366 ERA and one uh, and a 122 WHIP. Even better in the final two months. Had an August ERA of 276, September of 295, uh, with good WHIPs and good strikeout to walk ratios to support those numbers. Because it was actually, honestly, it was a really awful June and July. That when you kind of look month to month, that really tanked. Uh, Samarja's bottom line in terms of, of being like a number two, number three, which is what the expectations were. Can he avoid having those two disastrous months in in a six-month span? I don't know, but that is really the makeup of it because the other four months were pretty darn good, including the strong finish. Are you taking the 32-year-old Jeff Samarja next year or are you just letting others kind of mess with him in the back end? Well, that was a weird thing to say. That's Leave his back end alone unless he invites you to do so. <laughs> Please don't mess with Samarja on the back end. No, no. Um, but if not, <laughs> yes. Right. Make sure he's yeah. down for it. No, otherwise, I mean, against anybody messing with anybody. Are you going to take him in the late late rounds um, now that the price is tanked? I was going to laugh at your selection of him. I do. I do uh, enjoy talking to him immensely, and I think this might surprise people. He's actually pretty cerebral. Like he. He thinks pretty hard about his craft. He cares, but he's also kind of happy-go-lucky. And I think that in some ways San Francisco is the best place for him because they will 
you know, lay, they, they, they don't really, they're not prescriptive. They're not going to come to you and say, Hey, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you come to them and say, what should we do? Then Dave Rigetti is one of the best in the business. So I think the story of his season is, is one where he discovered the curveball, Um, and he discovered it, uh, he sort of brought it back out of retirement in, uh, late June. And, uh, he hadn't thrown that thing, uh, let me see how long it's been since he threw that thing. I mean, there's a couple blips. He threw it in 2012 for like a month, and then he threw it in his first, in his first, uh, his first go-around in 2009. And that's it. And... Lo and behold, here's the curveball. And what I love about this is that along with the curveball, the split finally came back. He was he stopped throwing the splitter forever, and he was in love with his cutter. Uh, and, uh, and at one point, he was like cutter, four-seam, sinker, slider. Like, just boring. Like, if someone came up doing that, even if with if that, at that Jeff velocity, Green. you'd say, we'll oh, we'll Chad Green, Green, Shane there. Green... You know, we've seen this before. Like, where are your, huh? Right, Jeff Green. But uh, late in the season, he brought this curveball back. And uh, if you look at what he did after he brought the curveball back, uh, 62 innings, 63 strikeouts, 18 walks, 245 ERA. So, I mean, he was a lot better with that curveball. And. You know, if you look at the pitch in terms of outcomes, um, in terms of velocity and stuff, it's a little bit better than average, 80 miles an hour. Movement is worse than average. It's just, it's like a, you know, it's not terrible, but it's it's not very good. Um, but um, people don't Ew. swing at it. It's uh, It's got a 30% swing rate. The league average for curveballs is 40%. Um, that works, but uh, that allowed him, I think, to steal a lot of strikes. So, um, yeah. So let me see here. That, that's actually that swing rate was for his career. <clears throat> yeah, it, it was a little bit higher this year, thirty-five percent, probably because he threw it more than ever. So people started to spot it. But uh, if you look at his ball rate, um, it's uh, it's on par with his fastballs. So he that gave him another pitch where you know, his curve slider. Uh, sinker and four seam are all below 35% ball rate. So that, that meant that he could actually throw these things for strikes, throw them where he wants to throw them, and it doesn't have the outcome problems that his cutter does. His cutter is a line drive uh, a quarter of the time. It gives up a ton of homers, and um, he falls in love with it too much. So I think just basically he started to diversify his, his arsenal late in the season, and gave us a little bit of a of a clue that he's not he's not done and he can still do uh, what he's projected to do. And if you just pay for his projections, yeah, you got to buy this guy. Three seven three ERA, one twenty WHIP, seven and a half strikeouts for nine. So it's, he, it's not gonna it's not gonna win you a league probably, but it'll no. It'll but he's a mid rotation guy on a good team yeah. that there's still a chance a lot for of wins. The, he got and, twelve wins this year. Exactly, and and twenty fourteen. I think I think it could still happen, right? It's the small, it's the five percent outcome, right. but I don't think I don't think we completely throw that away and say Samarja can never have a huge year like that again. And and getting a little bit of upside with your mid rotation guy definitely works. Now, one thing I was yeah, saying, I mean, because we we didn't see the full effect of throwing that splitter a lot. 
the splitter kind of went away uh, slowly from 2014 to this year. And that used but to be late his pitch. in 2016. He started throwing it again. And um, if I can get that game log back up again, I can give you a swinging strike number. While you're looking for that, I'll mention uh, he actually went the 10th round of the draft in Arizona, which surprised me. That's too high. I don't think he'll go there consistently. Um, I think part of the effect that we see on this early draft is that uh, the players will draft guys that they know a little bit higher just because – uh, again, they haven't had time to digest the whole season to make a comprehensive list. So they say, oh, Jeff Samarja, he's still on San Francisco. I'll take him. Tenth round, way too high. But I could see him going three, four, five rounds later, and then I start getting interested in a in a teens round um, Jeff Samarja. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, back down to sort of where we were, he, he's um... – He'd be a good pairing with like your Snell Cotton, you know? Yes, absolutely. I, I love you know, doing that. We talk a lot about this, making pairs of players that you kind of see in that tandem, young and old, power and speed, however you want to do it. Uh, you yeah, know, your be- best case scenario, you get the guy soaking up innings uh, and, and you get Cotton to hit. In your worst case scenario, you probably get one of the two. You either yeah, get a guy who can soak other. up innings or you get the, you know, the exciting rookie. So You're going to cut you know a, a handful of your guys taken 15th round or later and oh, so you so know so many of them yeah take take some gambles plus i drafted a guy who doesn't even exist i drafted tom murphy that dude's <laughs> fake i already have somebody if, i have know, to if cut you, if you if you only go lotto tickets late i do think it does hurt you a little bit oh i i agree um, i agree i i'm because samarja's not like a good samarja that's soaking up innings and being a good he's not that type is not usually on the on the wire Mm-hmm. It's usually either a breakout from nowhere, which has the, a total risk of falling back. Like if you're talking about waiver wire, it has a total risk of just being like a flash in the pan. Exactly. So you're having to take gambles on on way you know way more warts than the warts that Samarja has. I agree that there's like a right. a floor like there that you actually want. having having Samarja on your team might allow you to hold Cotton through two or three bad games. Exactly. You know, no, I, or hold I your other agree. waiver wire pick through a couple of bad games. All right, next one here on these uh, these strong finishes, Wiley, old Wiley Peralta. We briefly mentioned him um, sometime, I believe it was in September, that he had been playing really, pitching really well since coming back. The bottom line is not going to tell you anything good that you want to see. 486, 153 ERA and wimp, whip combo with a uh, 17% strikeout rate. But if you look at everything from when Willie Peralta came back from his injury, that's when he really started to take off and start to show back show some of that upside that we'd seen a couple years ago now because he had a really tough 2015 as well. I'm pulling up the numbers right now to see how he finished the season in the second half. And he had a uh, 292 ERA in 62 innings with a 115 whip, 7.4 strikeouts, and a 3-2 strikeout-to-walk ratio. I mean, he was really strong after a disastrous first three months. Um, went down for an injury. I can't remember exactly what the injury was. I'll look that up while you start talking. But uh, then really good pitcher for, the, for his final 10 starts. Is there still something here with a 28-year-old Willie Peralta next year? Yeah, I mean, you can even expand it to the first day he averaged 95 again on his fastball, which is you know what he used to used to have in his pocket and didn't have early on when he was hurt, I think. If you expand it out, that's it's just a few more innings, but 71 innings, 3.55 URA, seven strikeouts per nine, 50% ground ball rate. I mean, these are the things that make him who he is. He's the, exactly. he's the sinker guy with you know, multiple sliders he can use to get people out. It was no bleak, uh, by the way, that cost him two months. 
Yeah, the the problem for me, Joe, though, is the age. Um, I mean, it's not a real problem yet, but he's going to be uh, in his 28-year season next year. And it's hard to have him go up in velocity over his yearly average. So, you know, best-case scenario, he's probably sitting 94.5 next year. And I feel like he doesn't get enough swings and misses for the raw stuff. Like when you watch him pitch when he's on and he is throwing 95 and then the devastating slider, you're like, how's this guy not have a 10% swinging strike rate? 8.5 has been his high, uh, eight for his career. And that's just not going to cut it, especially in today's strikeout age. You're talking about a guy who has a 6.4 career K9. That's hurting you. That's actively hurting you based on what you need out of every pitching slot to be competitive in strikeouts. So that's that's definitely a downside of Peralta. Um, love the ground ball rate. That makes up for some of it in terms of, of you know run prevention, especially if they're weak ground balls. But there just might not be enough to, to get super uh, into, into what Willie Peralta is offering. Yeah, it's hard to see a real split that you can that you can really take advantage of. Uh, yeah, he's allowed a 355 wOBA against righties, mostly uh, against lefties, mostly because he gives up more home runs because of that slider. Mm-hmm. Um, but his four four oh four career WHIP uh, career FIP against righties is not that great either. It's a six point five strikeout for nine, three walks per nine, point uh, eight four homers per nine. It's just it's just sort of meh across the board. I mean, you could try to find that righty heavy uh, lineup away from home where, you know, his FIP is 4.1 away from home, 4.5 at home. So, you know, of course he gives up fewer homers away. So you could do something where in a deeper sort of draft and hold like this 50 round league, you could buy him uh, to, to, to throw him in, you know, when he's on a NLE swing, you know, and oh, that, yeah. You know, when he's happens with the intention of spotting him, like, you know, that you're not going to be using Willie Peralta regularly um, unless you unless you're trying to lose. Right. (laughs) Hey, maybe maybe you're out. Maybe you're out. to. No, I'm just kidding. But um, But away versus righties combine all his best splits. This has got to be the best upside. He's got three, eight, eight FIP. Yeah. So you get know know what you're getting there. Absolutely. If that's your 10 percent, if that's your 90th percentile outcome, (laughs) a three, eighty eight ERA. That's I think tough. that sort of encapsulates how much you want to spend on Mr. Yeah. Wiley. I think that's fair about uh, old Wiley there. All right, let's let's uh, let's dive in on a couple of these uh, FIP superstars. And again, we're looking at ERA minus FIP and, and focusing on the ones who still had some, some quality skills behind it, not just uh, 6 ERA, but a, a 5-10 FIP. I don't really care about those guys. Sorry, Anibal Sanchez. Uh, Robbie Ray is a guy that I – I'm 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 still kind of tepid on uh, to be honest. I see the numbers. I love the strikeouts. They're great. You don't usually see a 200 strikeout season um, with these kind of skills or, or with with these kind of results. I mean, a 490 ERA and a 147 WHIP. In fact, I think uh, I can't remember where I was talking about it. That um, looking up these strikeout guys that didn't have great results to go with it with 200 plus strikeouts. And the only other guy that kind of came close to it was a younger Mark Langston, uh, also a lefty. In fact, I might've only looked up lefties. I can't remember the exact uh, thresholds I put in to baseball reference, but I remember he was the only name that stood out and like, Oh, this was another guy. Yeah. Back in 1986, he had a 485 ERA and a 149 whip, but 245 strikeouts. You just don't see 200 plus strikeout seasons with uh, ERAs approaching five. So what the hell is it about Robbie Ray that 
if he's not getting a strikeout, the ball's getting blasted because he has a 35, 35, and 37% hard contact rate in his three seasons. And I think that's that's kind of what it is. It's like, okay, I either strike you out or you get a great hit in the gap or over the fence. What's up with Robbie Ray? Yeah, it's uh, it's a tough one. He, he actually has a decent difference between his four seam and sinker, almost a little bit Chris Tillman-esque where, you know, uh, the shape of those two pitches is fairly different. Uh, you know, kind of a rising fastball, four seam fastball, and then a, a sinker that's a little bit more sideways. Um, and, uh, you know, he did actually late in the season kind of switch from throwing the uh, changeup some to throwing the curve more. Um, so, you know, by the end of the season, in terms of raw pitch counts, uh, his his average, I mean, he did have one game against Baltimore where he threw 25 curves and changes combined, which is just crazy. But his more normal game was, um, was uh, you know, 10 curves, uh, 20 sliders, and, um, you know, like 70 fastballs. Uh, okay. 30, 30, 30 sliders, 30 sliders, 10 curves and 65 fastballs. Um, I mean, so still the fastball's not bad pitcher. either, by the way. Yeah, still, but still pretty much. A, no, the fastball's really good. Yeah. And I mean, a 94 from a lefty is really good. And the slider, you know, um, I think it's one of the best in the game. 24% on the slider is, uh, is pretty impressive. that in context in a second but it's the curve that well the change gave up a lot of home runs so maybe he just needs to abandon it and he sort of did yeah change gave up twice as many home runs as any other pitch when you did it per pitch he's continued to move away from that change up has Robbie Ray I think he understands as well that it's just it's just not working so it's then you it becomes a question of do we believe in this curve which is uh, a poor movement curve, but 81 miles an hour. Um, so, you know, it's maybe a little bit close to a slider. And so is he going to start having issues there where they blend together? Um, it's possible. And that might that might affect as a command, and then maybe we'll see more home runs off the curveball. But if you sort of uh, eradicate that change and assume that the curveball, let me see what it looks like against right-handers. Um, against right-handers, yeah. Uh, it's a little bit more different than his curve, uh, than his slider against right-handers. And um, it doesn't give out that many homers, and it gives 12% whiffs. It's not that the curve needs to be amazing by itself. I, I kind of remember when you when you look at um, Matt Moore the, or, or Jeremy Hellickson, the cutters that they throw are not that amazing by themselves, but they allow them to do other things. Exactly. It's having the threat of the pitch, even if it's not great, as more than a show me pitch that, uh, that, that allows your other pitches to play up a little bit more, as long as they're not getting absolutely obliterated for an 1100 OPS or something. That's, that's kind of the fine line that you have to, uh, to run there. And that's, that's kind of the issue with Robbie Ray's changeup. So, I mean, so I, I don't think it's do one, one thing real quick is just okay. uh, look at him since he kind of went to the curve instead of the changeup, which, um, I have to do raw pitch counts to really see this. Um, change okay so i think uh let's use seven nine is the first day he threw 15 curves and less than 10 change-ups in a game uh, so seven nine sixteen against uh I think 
San Francisco. But if you take that as a starting point and do your game log, let's see. I'd like to more fun with selective endpoints. <laughs> um, well, seven nine doesn't exist. So way to go, you know. Uh, way to go. Seven nine sixteen. Oh, yeah. That's July, not June. You're an idiot. <laughs> All right, here we go. I was born in June too. Jesus. All right, since that day, this past June. Ooh, five oh five ERA. And that was uh, what? What were you checking since he started throwing the curve uh, that's more? That's when he started going to the curve more than the change. He, he, some, he, he really ended the season poorly. Yeah, he was a home run machine in September. I think he yeah. gave up at least one per start and maybe two or three in his last outing. But he had a 12K9. Yeah, it was, I mean... 110 strikeouts and 82 innings in his last 15 games. The dude gets Ks like crazy, and it's... So, okay. I think that, I mean, I think that's enough to buy him. Okay, I, mean, I, I agree. I agree, right? Enough to buy him. Even though I'm tepid because he gives up so much hard contact... Again, you just don't see 200-plus strikeout seasons with this kind of performance um, continue. They get better. Even the the one example, the major example was Langston. I'm not saying he's going to be Mark Langston, who ended up being a pretty damn good pitcher for 16 seasons. But even that very next season, he cut a run off of his ERA. Mark Langston did. Had 262 strikeouts that season and uh, you know made the All-Star game. Where do you see Robbie Ray landing then? We don't think he's going to have a 490 ERA and a 147 WHIP. I feel comfortable saying that, but but where regress regress to what 376 FIP is what he had 345 xFIP. I don't find xFIP is particularly useful with him because I think he's going to continue to give up homers, and that neutralizes his home run uh, to fly ball rate, which is 12 percent for his career. It was 16 percent this time, year. Like his actual projections seem pretty. Pretty excited. I mean, three five two ERA, you know, one twenty two WHIP, ten like basically ten strikeouts for nine. I mean, that's that's regressing him to a point nine five home run rate. So I think that's maybe actually a little aggressive. Um, I'd rather pay for like a three seven five ERA, one three WHIP, um, and crap like ton a, of strikeouts. Yeah, and a crap ton of strikeouts. So like, um, like better than Javi Guerra, but. You know, in Junior. the context of this draft that we're doing, like, uh, I'd rather have Jonathan Gray. Same. In, in the 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather have that um, Snell. Would I rather have Cotton? I don't know. I think uh, Ray belongs in that sort of Snell, Cotton. You get 16, Cotton five rounds round. later. Yeah. Although we know that that's not going to continue. To, like, we're looking at this draft. Ooh, it looks like Robbie Ray went in the 16th. Yeah. So they're going to be closer, though. Waka went in the 17th. Blake Snell went in the 17th. Um, Matt Shoemaker went in the 18th. We don't know what's up with the If Shoemaker, Snell, Ray, and Cotton are all on the board, I'll probably wait till the 18th, get one of those, and then hope I get Cotton on the way back. I think that works. I think that absolutely works. I don't need to be the first guy in line for Robbie Ray. Yeah, same. I, I can see myself saying, okay, you can't leave 200 strikeouts on the board this long, so I'll take him. But by and large, I do, I do still have some uh, reluctance with Robbie Ray uh, to where I need to see it. So I probably won't end up with him much. 
but uh, maybe get at least one share just in case there are some some big changes. I can tell you I'm not going to get any shares of this guy because I'm over it, but I'll let you try to convince me that he doesn't suck. Michael Pineda had a uh, 1.02 split in his ERA with FIP, uh, to FIP, uh, 544 ERA, 443 FIP, 10.6 strikeouts, 2.7 walks. Those are both excellent, but 1.4 homers. Uh, we don't have a leaderboard for it, but his command would be negative 5 billion because he throws terrible strikes all the time. I get that he was really good in 2011. I get that he had a good 76 inning stint with the Yankees in 2014 when he came back from all those injuries. But now we're looking at two years of just massive underperformance against the the raw stats that or the raw skills that he has. I mean, 14% swinging strike rate this year is so good. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I can't get too excited about it. I see a 3.44 ERA and 112 FIP, uh, excuse me, 112 WHIP projection um, in Steamer and depth charts right now, and I just I don't see that. Maybe you see otherwise. Tell me about Michael Pineda and maybe why I'm wrong or why I'm a genius and you agree. It's interesting. He only got 10% whiffs on that changeup this year. Uh, changeup that at times looked really good. And at other times uh, got taken out of the park. Uh, I think that's part of the picture. Uh, there was definitely some mechanical adjustments that he made uh, that seemed to you know, maybe portend better days in the future. Uh you know, I'm really tempted to just kind of zoom out all the way on this one okay. and uh, not actually get that granular. Like I normally, you know, people are probably used to me, you know, getting really into this. But I think I think there is a picture emerging for him. And if you think you, if you zoom out all the way and look at his career rates, I know that takes at risk the fact that um, there were different home run rates, wildly different home run rates at different points of his career. You're talking um, about the the league home run rate was vastly different. Yeah. In addition to his vacillating, right? Right. So, uh, you know, in twenty in twenty eleven, you know, his first season, um, you know, maybe we should maybe we should leave that out uh, because it was so long ago and the home run rate was so different. He's a completely um, different pitcher since then. But when he came back for that twenty fourteen stand, twenty uh, seventy six innings, did Pineda throw for the Yankees? He had a point six homer per nine, which is obviously really good. Right, I don't want to. Don't want to. That's what I'm saying. Let's let's zoom out beyond that, but let's include that. Uh, let's include that time in 14, just to just to be fair. It did exist. It did happen. Uh, Are you sure it happened, or was it Westworld? I don't. Here's the thing. I don't know anything four, about Westworld, so I shouldn't pretend like I know to make jokes. Don't that. Uh, 400 innings uh, since he in in this post injury, you know, Michael Pineda world. Okay. Uh, 407 strikeouts. Uh, That's good. 78 walks. That's the real good part. That's the really um, good part. But maybe he should have a few more runs. Walks. Only a 1.19 home run per nine rate uh, when you add it all together. Uh, however, still a 318 BABIP. Batting average on balls in play still pretty high. And Michael Pineda's ERA 421, FIP 345. I think that uh, takes some of the upside off. I mean, I think if you're like comparing him to Robbie Ray, for example, uh, you're going to get more strikeouts from Robbie Ray. You get more home run risk. But since you don't really want to pitch the 421 Michael Pineda, and you don't really want to pitch 
the 450 or 5 ERA Robbie Ray. What you're talking about buying is the upside. And in this case, the upside, a 345 FIP, um, is not the same as Robbie Ray's. You know, it just isn't. Yeah, no, and, I, and, I think and that's he fair. He hasn't been able to keep the innings up. Uh, he's like often a five inning guy, so harder for him to get the er uh, to get the wins. Um, and Robbie Ray's like a, a younger guy that um, you know could maybe make that leap all the way to the curveball and never well, and doesn't have two missed years due to injury either. Yeah, right. I mean, that's another that's another factor we have to consider that in Pineda's profile. I mentioned this offhandedly. I, I'm not, I'm serious about it though. Does he maybe need to walk more guys? I think this was wasn't this something that CC uh, realized that he had to do. CC Sabathia, um, you know, he had those great strikeout to walk rates that that kept interest up at least in some circles. Uh, I know that you would still say, "Hey, look, we're still dealing with something that could be workable here." And then he finally said, "You know what?" Maybe I will give in a little bit, start walking a few more guys, give up some, give up fewer homers and hits. And then he got down to a 391 ERA last year in 180 innings, which is not game changing, but it's a hell of a lot more usable than the 476 and the 528 and the 478 that he had in the three years before that uh, for Sabathia. So wh- what do you think about that? Maybe Pineda saying, okay, I don't have to live in the zone. I have nasty enough stuff. I can maybe try to induce some chases. Um, and and walk maybe a couple more guys. It'll be okay if I have a three I, three walk rate. We saw I, we saw that I think with Musgrove a little bit, right? Like he yeah he was two in the zone, and then he. The problem is that I think Musgrove has decent command, so it was a question of like, am I going to try to aim for right on the plate or right off the plate, three four inches in terms of intention, which of course leads to a big wider spray. But Absolutely. it does move your heat map in a way. You know, you sort of move the the bo- the main body of your pitches uh, off the plate. The problem, I think, from Pineda is he's so scattershot anyway that if he moved it off the plate, there's no telling what can happen. Might might end up with more dick shots. So uh, the home Looking run rate might go shots. up, and then he might end up in worse counts. And he doesn't have a wide arsenal. Musgrove actually has a wider arsenal. Well, Musgrove probably has like five or six pitches. And Pineda has like two and a half. So if you get into bad counts, then you become more predictable. So, um, you know, honestly, it, it, there it is. I said it, but it was only one. Oh, I, had, I hadn't really heard you say it much at all. Yeah, yeah so I, okay. I, think, I think you're good. But uh, if Pineda ended up in the National League tomorrow, I would buy pretty hard, I think. because if, You said if he went to the National League? Yeah. Just because... He would be able to turn it over, get to the sixth inning, having faced fewer position players. It would mm-hmm. be those three, those three free outs. Uh, he would have a, 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 he would give up fewer homers, I think. And um, general, in general, face like if he ended up in Atlanta, I would buy in a second. That would be really interesting. What if he just ended up in a friendlier spot in the American League? Would that change your outlook at all? Because I know Yankee Stadium is is. Certainly, part of the a little issue bit, with but Pineda. You can see that there's a problem beyond just the homers. Just using that exactly. thing, it was 1.19 homers per nine is bad, but the 318 BABIP is also yep. uh, interesting. And just too, too many. I agree though. Getting getting into the pitcher, uh, some of the eight hitters in the National League are are markedly worse than the eight hitters that we see in the American League. Like the split isn't as sharp as it used to be, maybe ten years ago, AL to NL, but. 
uh, it actually grew a little bit this past season after a few years of really coming close uh, to where the only difference was the pitchers. Actually, after this year with the with the power surge, it, the split widened a little bit more. And so, yeah, maybe move to the National League. Atlanta, that's a really interesting one. They seem to be in on everybody and everything, looking to get whatever talent they can get, obviously, regardless of age. This would actually kind of straddle that line of, um, you know, an established guy. He's 28 years old who's, who's got some enough. innings, but young enough to not, where there is some growth. You like Archer or Sale. And another thing that just occurred to me is that I wonder if we're seeing a little bit of the exit velocity tutoring, um, you know, kind of affecting Pineda more than most because he's he's not a ground ball guy, and um, he's allowed a lot of really authoritative contact in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just uh, I just wonder if that has something to do with it. He's kind of, but at the same time, he's not like a Drew Smiley where you're like, oh, you're 89, you live high in the zone. Of course, you're having a problem. You know? Exactly. Like there, there's stuff here. There's reasons. I get it. Believe me, I was a Pineda backer throughout all the time prior to 2016 and even in early 2016 it's just that I got to a point where I said okay I'm done betting on it let me see something and until I do I can't give them these lofty projections yeah. um so well I mean you can look at look at a guy like Danny Salazar who also throws dick shots and has great stuff and I think that there's enough in Danny Salazar's history you can say oh you know like even a guy with bad command it also a don't use walk rates as a proxy for command because yes. Danny Salazar had you know two two and a half walk rate in the minors and uh, did that for three years going into last season and yet we and all knew that he didn't have good command please understand the difference between command and control yeah. this is such a good example both of these guys yes seven percent walk rate you're like oh he's got great command he has solid control but he would have trouble in the zone, and so he give up a lot of homers, too many hits, particularly in 2014 when he had that 425 ERA, 138 whip combo. This is Salazar I'm talking about, 343 Babbitt. You don't have a 343 Babbitt when you have good command. You just yeah, don't. Right. Yeah. You have to get really unlucky for that to happen, especially with his stuff. Over and so he had bad command. He's putting 96 on a tee. Yeah, and, and, and even this year where he had an amazing strikeout rate, 28%, you know, 11, almost 11 per nine, 10.6 per nine. Um, you know, that that was all good. But, uh, you know, four four plus walks per nine, uh, Babbitt over 300 again. Uh, Homer's three, still at 1-1. One, one. 387 ERA. So I think, uh, you know, his projections, 366-122. That's Danny Salazar's 366-122, nine, 9.6 uh, strikeouts per nine. Um, I, I can't imagine that Pineda's projections should be lower than that. It is though. It's three forty four one twelve. That's a little weird for me. That's a little. That, weird that's for such me. a great name, you know, because I don't, I don't really associate those too much. And I, right. looking at it now, they're not too far off. They're really not. Well, Salazar uh, it, has a little bit more of a bigger arsenal because he he started throwing that curveball, and um, you know he he's got a couple pitches, but um, in essence, we're talking about the command problem. And he, Dan Salazar is a name that comes up now. Carrasco also doesn't have great command. But Carrasco has more pitches. Oh, my God. He's got a kitchen sink that he and, can give you. And they're all really amazing, really good pitches. And he can pretty much throw them to the center of the strike zone. So um, I think that's – I think if, if you gave Pineda – like if, you, if, if Pineda really had that changeup, if I believed that, that Pineda believed in that changeup and could throw it and it was a really good pitch – um, then I would, I would say, well, there's still the chance of Carlos Carrasco. But right now I think – 
the best chance for Pineda is Danny Salazar. Okay. We'll keep that in mind, folks. And if you're in a draft with me, there's a good chance you're going to get him because I'm not going to take him more than likely. Uh, one, one more. And this guy's way off the radar. He's actually kind of closer to that super high ERA and still a bad fit. But I wanted to include him because I think you mentioned him out in Arizona. And this was a guy I remember looking at a couple different times during the season saying, there's some stuff here. Like maybe this guy is okay. And then he would get killed. And I think I used him as a SP two and DFS a couple times. I'm talking about Luis Perdomo out in San Diego, Uh 24 year old. Oh, he's age 23 this season. He'll be age 24 next year. Again, these numbers are not going to do anything for you except make you vomit. 571 ERA, 159 whip, but a 484 FIP, one uh, four homers, 341 BABIP, only 16% strikeout. Uh, the only like, good number is a 7% walk, and we just got done telling you that doesn't mean he has anything but some passable c- control, not necessarily command, but a mid-90s fastball, good slider, um, and a changeup that he that he's at least using 10% of the time. Is there anything here with with Luis Perdomo out in San Diego, or is this just a uh, an arm destined for the bullpen eventually? I just been spending a lot of time slagging on Ivan Nova as a um, as a potential free agent. Uh, so this will be a little bit weird to say, but I think um, I see a lot of Ivan Nova in here. And uh, what what Perdomo has is a really good, really low spin sinker. Okay. And um, by the way, a key difference before you go any further is that Perdomo is going to be league uh, league minimum salary, and oh, yeah. someone's going to pay Nova right. way too much. I mean, and I actually kind of like Nova. That's, that's why I can say get. both of those things and be exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he he going to get paid, yeah. and I think it's going to be a bit of an overpay again. And I'm the Nova backer here, but I still think that that's going to happen. Go ahead, Perdomo. So once he once he became more Ivan Nova esque and started um, in July, started throwing the sinker 70% of the time, the curveball 25% of the time, and going to the change, um, you know, basically uh, once an inning or something on average. Uh, Once he did that, things got better for him, and I will stretch this out as Van Graaff's loads. Do, 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 do. Jason Castro in uh, Minnesota. Do, 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 do. I meant to tell you that earlier. I got I got sidetracked. Yeah. Um, Come on, Fangraphs. Like eight mil per right. Three years, twenty four. Four years, thirty two. What is it? Uh, uh, yeah, three so years, twenty four and a half mil. Interesting is that he's a, he's a one win guy um, when it comes to. Uh, there we go. Uh, just back to Perdomo real quick. Since he went to the sinker that often changed his thing he was a 4-2-1 ERA guy uh with five strikeouts per nine and in fact there was one more wrinkle where in August he kind of uh shifted uh and started throwing the change up a little bit more often um and uh if we want to selectivize our endpoints even a little bit more I think we'll find that he really ended on a high note um which I think this is well there's a 4-2 ERA again um, but anyway, that's uh, that's I, that's I think w- how I value uh, Perdomo uh, for okay. like a league average pitcher. He's a he's a really I think he's a really good deep league pitcher. I think I would love to spend uh, yeah, like you're looking... two or three dollars on him in NL only. I, and I don't even know if he'll cost you that much. I don't think he's on the radar yeah. at all. So I think you can actually dollar Perdomo in an NL only uh, as your second to last or last pitcher 
and you might actually have a little something here. So if he can be like a 420 guy, his projections actually have him at 416. Uh, so the projections actually agree with you here. If you're talking about a projection that's 416, 420, that means there's a tinge of upside there to get below four. And then if you're getting a below four for 172 innings, which is what the projections have him out of your last pitcher in an NL only, yeah. that's hot. That that that's really useful in any context, really, but especially in in the new context, if it holds with the with the offense spiking. I know a couple of years ago you could probably find a three eight ERA on the whip or uh, on the wire. I mean, a three eight ERA yeah, on the wire, enough. the way pitchers were. But now it, it kind of went back to like uh, four two. So yeah, it, it was a lot tougher now to find usable pitching uh, on waiver wires, even in, in shallower in the leagues. American League, that would be such a perfect. One or two dollar guy in a, in a labor ALM. for your towel or for labor, yeah, yeah. I'm exactly. For guys like that, where I'm like, yeah, the upside's not great, but I can probably get him. Um, and then over to Jason Castro, real quick, just because it's an actual piece of news. Yeah, it's a it's the first signing we've had in in Hold a few on days to it now. With both hands um, and kiss it. Um, I guess they're signing him for defense. Well, yeah, because, because his bat is really falling. He's off. projected to be a one win guy, which. Uh, first of all, that's decent. If uh, I mean, if you one win guy for um, twenty was it thirty two over no twenty, it's twenty four over three. Yes. So basically, you're paying like eight million a season for one win. That's fine. Uh, he's a two plus win guy if you add in framing from baseball perspectives. Oh, okay, so it is the defense because I saw um, I don't know if it was Heyman's or, or Rosenthal's tweet, but the response is. And that, you know, they weren't quite egg profiles, but they were angry sports homer for his team. Like, oh, that guy sucks. He's the worst. Why'd they even sign him? And it's like, it's the bat. I get it. You're going to look at 651, 648, and 684 OPS the last three years, and it's not going to move the needle. But I think, like, when they signed Kurt Suzuki, this is a defensive thing that they're looking at with Jason Castro. He's going to be 30, though. Uh, is there any chance that the bat comes back near? That break, like okay, actually throw that out. Throw the breakout season away. That's such well, the outlier. No, I mean, that's he, not. He told me in that season that he was really screwing with his uh, ground ball fly ball rate um, in order to uh, to get more well, power. What the hell did he do since? Um, well, if you look at that that year, it was one of his best years in terms of hitting uh, fly balls. It was his second. Oh yeah, and then two two of the last three years have been much worse right. than than what he had, and only one only one year has been better from a ground ball to fly ball ratio standpoint. But I think if and, he uh, if he sort of embraced that ground ball philosophy and uh, tried to cut down on the strikeouts, like you could see, and that's something that you know I think the Twins would love to talk to him about. Um, I could I could see like a guy who would still hit ten homers, uh, but maybe hit two forty, um, you know, and be a little bit closer to how many homers? Ten. Yeah, I mean, it, it, as long as he's not hitting two ten, which but is I what think, he's hit the last two. I think the years. real fantasy import here because he, he's like a second catcher ale only, no matter what. All right, uh, the fantasy imports for their pitchers, yes. right? And I'm uh, I, I don't know. Irvin Santana is who he is. Uh, Hector sent. He's he's solid. And I mean, and if uh, if he gets him into some better counts and erases some of those home runs per nine for Urban Santana, then maybe he's more like four hundred one than four four point five. You know. Um, yeah. Well, and he closed. He closed really strong. I honestly, I would, I would honestly project. I just said honestly twice in the same sentence. You know, I'm worse than you. I would honestly project. Um, I, I like what he did. He was a three thirty eight ERA last year. I don't think it's out of bounds to have him closer to the 
three and a half to three sixty mark for for a projection coming into this year. And if Castro is working some magic, maybe he can emulate that three thirty eight again. I I I've always liked Santana. He's gonna be thirty four years old. You're talking about a guy who's not gonna cost you anything uh, to draft. He, he he trusts that change up more now, so he's not quite the guy he was earlier. He's still he'll still have some homer issues and stuff, but. Um, you know, he went into Minnesota and took advantage of that park and had a good season. I, I agree with you. I think um, Santana could be helped by this a little bit. And uh, and um, uh, Phil Hughes, like, needs to have, like, a 1.1 1. 1, uh, walk per nine to succeed. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe Castro can get him there. Jose Barrios, I think, is the second most draftable pitcher or, or maybe the most draftable pitcher on the Twins. We know he has mm-hmm. command issues. Maybe Castro can ease him into better counts. You know, take it. What about a guy I can't quit? Kyle Gibson. What about him? I know. Kyle, I think I, I should think quit I him. There's nothing. He just. I think it's he, fair. He, keeps, he had a 507 ERA for crying out I know, out. but he also. What I wanted to see, he keeps he keeps doing it, and it's not enough. Like, he, he threw the most change-ups and sliders combined of his career and the fewest fastballs of his mm-hmm. career last year, which is something I've been Yeah, he got, he got away from. Yeah, from his eighty nine ninety one blah fastball, started leaning on the secondary stuff and had a disastrous year. It just year. didn't work out. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how many tweaks are left in that one. But uh, I think uh, for me, Barrios uh, makes Barrios more exciting. And then a sleeper from my first pitch, Arizona uh, spin. Um, um, pre- uh, uh, what's it called? Presentation. Presentation. That's the word. Uh, I would put. Uh, I know our depth charts have Andrew Albers and Tyler Duffy six seven. I do not respect their talents uh, greatly, uh, <laughs> and I would put Adalberto Mejia. Mejia, yes, a, uh, um, who they got from San Francisco in a trade for the Eduardo Nunez yes. deal. A legit prospect. High spin fastball, high, uh, really good slider, plus slider that's always served him well. And a developing change he has better uh, control and command of, and now a uh, a good catcher that can uh, help his. I think I don't know if it's plus command, but good command uh, play to the best of its abilities. So uh, okay. I wouldn't act on Adalberto Mejia as a sleeper in mixed leagues, but um, he will definitely be. Well, if someone's listening, they can always bid me up a dollar, but. He will probably be on my AL labor squad next year, especially like a reserve. Don't be jerks. In AL only Don't be because... jerks. Yeah, because you guys go five or six reserves after the Perfect draft, to have so you get a really deep. That has some upside that probably will be needed. I mean, if you if you talk about if he's the seventh pitcher, that's needed. If he's the tenth pitcher, you could probably go through the whole season without being used. But the seventh pitcher gets used. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right, that's going to wrap it up. Gave a nice long episode for the holidays. I hope everyone has a good Thanksgiving. I know you're going to be traveling uh, to be with the fam. I'm going to be hanging out with my sister up north. So uh, we will be back. I think Jason and I will be back Sunday, and then you and I will be back next week. So enjoy your time off, you know, and uh, have a happy yes, Thanksgiving. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Enjoy yourselves, and we gave you a nice long podcast because we love you. And no lockout. Bye. No lockout. No lockout.